And if you're physically able, would you stand with me as we read a portion of God's word, Isaiah chapter 43, and we're going to look at verse 10 and 11. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 and 11. I told you that I did have other verses in mind other than 1 Peter chapter 3. So here we go. Isaiah chapter 43 tonight, and we will pick it up in verse 10. Isaiah 43, verse 10, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord And besides me, there is no Savior. Father, we thank you so much for your word that does not change. And I pray tonight that you, once again, you would be our teacher. That you would instruct us in the things of the word. That we might do what 1 Peter 3 tells us to do. To give a defense. To have a reason for the hope that lies within us. I thank you for these precious men and women that you've brought out tonight. Lord, I thank you for the high schoolers and junior, junior hires that are, that are watching, Lord, right now. Lord, may you minister to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you may be seated. We do wanna welcome those young men and women that are watching. Glad you guys are here tonight. We have been reviewing or going over some questions over the last few weeks. And for those of you that can't remember what you had for lunch, and I'm of that category, hey, let's review. Number one, we looked at, what do I say to an evolutionist? It's good to know there are a few problems with the evolutionary theory because so many pass it off as fact. But the chance alone that life would originate from non-life, one in ten in the 40,000th power. It is so infinitesimal, it's absurd. But because most evolutionists have these no-God-colored glasses, it doesn't matter what the chances are, they'll never ever see it. It's why you've got to back up one step and go to the second question we addressed. What do I say to an atheist? What do I say to someone who just sees that there is no God? For us to break through to those that have that in mind, we should tell them you can look for evidences, a sign of design. No one would believe that a watch sitting on your wrist came about from an explosion in a watchmaker's shop, yet they believe that about the wrist that it's sitting on. The sign of the universe, the fact that the universe was created, that it came into existence. There's only three possible answers. Either the universe has always been. There's hardly a scientist alive, friends, that believes that anymore. Secondly, that it created itself. That's absurd. So it had to, what? Be created. Share it with them, share it with them. You see, understanding that there are things that show that there is a God, not only show us that there is a God, but what kind of God exists. One who is intelligent, for he created the world. One that is powerful because he designed it, and yet one that is the same time loving and kind because he is the source of morality and order and kindness. And there's only one God that fits that description, friends. It's the God that we learn about in this book right here, the Bible. There's only one God like that. Now, then you'll come to people who'll say, well, I understand that. There's gotta be something out there greater than myself, but my truth is as good as your truth. What makes your truth any better than mine? All religions basically teach the same thing. And so the third question we looked at is what do I say to a relativist? 
Now, a relativist is not a relative. Some of you are wondering, yeah, what do I say to Uncle Earl? I've always wanted to know. I don't know what to say to Uncle Earl. He may have an issue, but the reality is a a relativist is someone who believes there is no absolute truth. All religions basically teach the same thing. And we looked at that last week and we saw someone who holds that view. You've got to get them to see their view is self-defeating. If it's true that there are no absolutes, well, then there is at least one absolute and the statement is false. Friends, there are things that are true for everyone and at every time. And one of those timeless truths we find in the word of God, and if you don't know that you can trust the word of God, keep coming out, we'll get there eventually. But in the word of God, we're told that the road to heaven is not wide and broad like the world tells us, that it is narrow. In fact, Jesus says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And friends, that is a truth that absolutely matters. Now, last week, we also looked at some beliefs of different religions, and we're looking at relativism and showed how they differ from Christianity, how it's ridiculous to say that all religions teach the same thing. They don't in any way. But after that rapid overview of world religions, I want to take a couple of weeks and wrap up our first part of our series here where we're doing what do I say to? You're kind of following that. What do I say to an evolutionist? What do I say to an atheist? What do I say to a relativist? I want to wrap that up by looking over the next two weeks, tonight and next week, what do I say to a Mormon? And then next week, what do I say to a Jehovah Witness? I know there's a lot more belief systems out there, but I don't know how many of you have dealings in your everyday life with people from the Baha'i faith. I don't know how many of you go to school with Hindus, and so you just, you, that's really on, on my mind. If you do, if you do, if you work from, with someone with, a, with, with you know, not a standard, usually in America kind of religion, hey, Charlie Campbell, friend of ours, has a great website, alwaysbeready.com. He's got information on every cult, every world religion, all these apologetics issues. Just don't read it right before I teach it, because you'll see how much I steal from him. But that aside, just kidding, sort of. Listen. Though you don't come into these people that are, are, are facing the Baha'i faith maybe or the Hindu faith, you're going to come face to face with Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses all the time. All the time. In fact, I had a run in with two Jehovah Witnesses at Calvary Chapel Paris just last week. Now that story will be better told next week, but it was amazing. It was amazing. You have to come back to hear it. See? Back next week. But in being obedient to First Peter, it tells us we need to have a, a reason for what we believe, so we need to know what to say to these. And so this week we're going to deal with what to say to a Mormon, as I said. Next week what to say with a, to a Jehovah Witness. We're going to give you a little history of each of these movements, talk about how they differ from Christianity, and then talk about how to lovingly share Christ effectively with them. After we do that, we'll get to the questions you guys have begun to ask. Deep things like, why did the chicken cross the road and how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? I can't wait. No, those aren't the questions we're addressing. We've got some great ones coming up that you guys have emailed in and you still can, by the way. So those of you who are taking notes tonight, we're going to break down our study on what to say to a Mormon in four parts. The history of the Mormon church, the beliefs of the Mormon church, how it differs from the Bible, the problems with the Book of Mormon, and then finally tonight, how to share Christ with a Mormon. So let's look at these one at a time, and let me say right off the bat, the average Mormon is usually a wonderful person, a very moral, very family-oriented, very devoted to the Mormon church and its teaching. These, this is not, my intent is not to be a Mormon basher tonight. 
My heart tonight is to get you to understand what they, they believe. Number one, so you will be protected when they show up at your door. But to also give you some tools that you can minister to them should the opportunity arise. But we're dealing with genuine people. Good people who nonetheless have been greatly deceived from the truth. So to our outline, the history of the Mormon church. The first thing to consider is really Mormon church is a misnomer. The Mormon church is officially called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS for short. But most people have no idea what in the world you're talking about when they say LDS. Maybe in your mind you think, was that what I experimented with in college? No, it's not. No, it's not. LDS. You see, you get in a conversation with someone and, hey, are you a believer? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm LDS. And maybe your first response is, uh, I'm CCV. That's what I am. Calvary Chapel Vista. Great. We, I didn't know we all had acronyms, but I guess we do. But in reality, understand LDS stands for Latter-day Saint. And the first and founder, the first prophet of the Mormon church was a man by the name of Joseph Smith Jr. He was born on December 23rd, 1805. And in 1820, at the age of 15, he received a marvelous vision while praying in the woods. He was asking God, what church should I join? Which one should I be a part of? And he says that God the Father and the Son showed up and began to speak to him. They told him that they were very upset with every church that existed at that day. They they were upset with the followers of every church of that day. And they were going to revitalize Christianity through him. And by the way, I point that out to you. Because sometimes when you're sharing with a Mormon, they'll say, why are you attacking me? Why are you being hard on me, bro? But the reality is, understand, the Mormon church was originally attack on all Christianity. It was started because every one of us were corrupt. Every one of us were not following the Lord, every single church. So understand that and keep that in mind. By 1823, three years after Joseph Smith said he saw his vision, the angel Moroni, the glorified son of a man named Mormon, of whom the book and the cult is named after, appeared to him. In 1827, four years after this encounter, Joseph Smith said he received golden plates on which the Book of Mormon was allegedly written. Shortly after, Smith began to translate what he called Reformed Egyptian Hieroglyphics with the help of the Urim and the Thunim, a type that he said were miraculous spectacles which the angel Moroni provided him with. The Book of Mormon was finished translated and then published in 1830. That same year, Joseph Smith and a few followers officially founded a new religious society they first entitled the Church of Christ. There were some people who already had that name. They were a little upset. So they eventually changed it to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the Mormon Church had begun. Almost immediately, they began their outreach, their missionary work. And in a period of six years, get this, they had over 16,000 converts to their cult. That's crazy. 16,000 in six years. From the year 1831 to 1844, the quote-unquote prophet, Joseph Smith, received 135 direct revelations from God that moved the church from New York to Ohio, then to the Mormon metropolis of Nauvoo, Illinois, where the practice of polygamy was received from the Lord, they said, uh, and began to flourish. It was also there in Nauvoo, however, that Joseph Smith could no longer tolerate the most threatening of anti-Mormon publications, the Nauvoo Expositor. So he ordered its immediate destruction. 
Because of this, Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram were placed in jail in Carthage, Illinois, to await trial for their part in wrecking the newspaper. However, on June 27, 1844, a mob of 200 men stormed the jail, and Smith and his brother were murdered in a gunfight. After a power struggle, the second prophet of the Mormon church emerged. His name was Brigham Young. And he announced in 1846 the Mormons were leaving Nauvoo, Illinois. And the next year he brought the first band of Mormons to the Great Salt Lake. And with the exclamation, this is the place, he sealed the destiny of the Mormon church in the state of Utah. To this date, January of 2011, the Mormon church has had 16 prophets or presidents. Today has a following of almost 14 million members, and they have 52,000 missionaries spread over the whole world. Friends, you better know what to say to a Mormon. To understand their belief system, first you need to understand that they have four religious books that they consider from the Lord. The first one is the Bible, but some notes on that. The King James Version only of the Bible, and they say, as long it is correctly translated. In other words, you've messed it up. But, you know, as long as it's correctly translated, we'll take the Bible. Secondly, they have the Doctrine and Covenants. Thirdly, the Pearl of Great Price. And fourthly, the Book of Mormon. Now, if you keep that slide up, look at each of those. First of all, the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon tells the story of two ancient civilizations which were located in the, in the American continent. The first great civilization left the Tower of Babel around 2,250 B.C. by Mormon reckoning, crossed the Atlantic Ocean, and ended up in Central America. The second group left Jerusalem at 600 B.C., right before the Babylonian invasion, came all the way around Africa, across the Pacific Ocean, and landed on the west coast of South America. That tribe eventually divided into two, the Nephites and the Lamanites. These groups battled over the years, spreading over the continents, and the Book of Mormon teaches that Jesus came to the American continent, preached the gospel, set up baptism and communion, just like he did in the land of Israel, and eventually the Nephites were obliterated by the Lamanites, who are supposed to be the father of the Native American peoples, the Native American tribes that you have learned about uh, in the history books. But before the Nephites were destroyed, Mormon, a leader of the Nephites, wrote down an abridged history, gave it to his son Moroni, who buried it in the hills of what is now New York until Joseph Smith found it. The Doctrine and Covenants is a book that originally contained lectures of church doctrine and compilations of revelations or covenants, new visions the prophets of the LDS church would receive. In today's version, they have removed the lecture portion of the book. The Pearl of Great Price contains five sections, including some biographical material from Joseph Smith. It also contains the Book of Moses, the Book of Abraham, which we'll discuss in just a minute. And hopefully you're aware of their fourth religious book, the Bible, and what that's all about. The Bible, again, as they say, as it's correctly translated, because they hold to the Bible as one of their religious books, they'll tell you, hey, what you believe and what we believe is basically the same. Remember, it's just another testament of Jesus Christ. We're just, in their opinion, a purer form of Christianity. But friends, let's see how that lines up. This idea that we believe the same thing just in a pure form. Let's see how that lines up with essential truths we know about God in the Bible. First one, if you're taking notes, and we do give you those note, little things to put these notes in, if you want, it's okay, or you can make paper airplanes out of them too. You can do that as well, even though I work so hard on them. Listen, number one, number one, the truth about God. The truth about God. 
The Mormon faith is really a polytheistic religion, meaning they believe in more than one God. The gods came down, this is their own words, you know, just to say I'm not making this up, and the gods came down and formed these generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were formed in the day the gods formed the heavens and the earth, from the pearl of great price, the book of Abraham, chapter 5. Now, in their defense, even though they believe in the existence of more than one God, they only worship one God whom they call Heavenly Father or Elohim. The Mormon church denies the traditional doctrine of the Trinity, which states that God is one God that eternally exists in three separate but equal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you're a little shaky on some of those Bible doctrines that we're talking about tonight, like the Trinity or the deity of Jesus Christ, again, can I encourage you to come back next week? Because when we look at the Jehovah's Witness cult, we're going to look at where those doctrines of the Trinity, of Jesus' deity, of the deity of the Holy Spirit, where they come from in the Bible in detail next week. But for tonight, they don't hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. The Mormonism teaches that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three separate gods. So how does this teaching line up with what the Bible has to say? Again, consider Isaiah chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from the time and declare it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Friends, if there are other gods out there, the God you and I worship isn't aware, okay? He says, I don't even know of one. So the teaching does not line up with the word of God. Secondly, the truth about Jesus. Not just the truth about God the Father, but the truth about Jesus. The Mormons call Jesus the Son of God like we do, but they have an entirely different concept in mind when they use the term. They believe Jesus was the first of many, 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 many children that God the Father had through intimate relations in heaven with one of his many wives. They believe one another, or another one of God's sons is Lucifer or Satan, making Satan Jesus' brother. That comes from the Pearl of Great Price, the book of Moses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. The Mormons deny the traditional virgin birth, saying that instead Elohim came down to earth and had relations with Mary, producing Jesus from the teachings of the prophet Ezra Taft Benson, page 7. Again, how do these teachings line up? What they believe about Jesus, how do they line up with what the Bible says? Well, the book of, of, of Micah says that Messiah, Jesus, is eternal. It says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrapath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. In the book of John, chapter 5, it tells us that Jesus was equal with God. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Friends, Jesus is not created or the born son of God. He is equal to God in every way. And again, more on the deity of Jesus Christ next week. The third essential truth, the truth about man. The Mormons teach that as man is, God once was. In other words, he was once a man. And as God is, someday you get to become. You get to become a God. Again, from the words of Brigham Young. The Lord created you and me for the purpose of becoming gods like himself. 
We are created to become gods like unto our Father in heaven, Brigham Young said in the Journal of Discourses. We get to become gods. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good to me. I'd kind of like to be a god, rule over a planet or two. That kind of sounds amazing and interesting to me. But what does the Bible say? I mean, you can want to become a god, but what does the word of God have to say? Well, the verse we started with tonight, Isaiah 43, 10, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand, listen, that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Friends, it's almost like God looked into the future and saw this bizarre teaching that you could become a God and he speaks so clearly in the book of Isaiah. There was no God formed before me and sorry, friends, there will be no God formed after me. It doesn't line up with the word of God in any way. The truth about God, the truth about Jesus, the truth about man, also the truth about salvation. The Mormon church teaches that Christ's death on the cross brings a general salvation for all mankind. And this result of this salvation is all mankind will be resurrected and given eternal life. This salvation will be granted even to the worst of sinners, including non-Mormons. But Mormons also teach that to experience individual exaltation into the, the highest heaven, for you to become a god yourself, well, then one must have repented, been baptized, and lived a life of obedience to the laws and the teachings of the Mormon church. So to a Mormon, Christ's work is merely the beginning of salvation. Human works are needed to complete the process. And depending on your works, well, the Mormon church teaches you can achieve one of three levels of heaven. You can go to the celestial heaven, the highest heaven. That's where the good Mormons go. They get to become gods. Then there is the terrestrial heaven. That's where Calvary Chapel Vista goes. That's where you get to go. Sorry about that, but you're stuck kind of right there in the middle. Then there's number three, the terrestrial, which is the lowest. That's where non-believers in God go. And then there is a hell. But hell is only reserved for the really, really bad people like Pastor Jason, who would dare to teach this study. That's who gets to go to a place like that. Now, friends, obviously we disagree with all of those things. Consider what the Bible says. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians tells us salvation is a gift. It's not about uh, following doctrines of any particular belief system or church. He saved us. It's about believing in Jesus. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus tells us. Again, in their view of salvation, heaven is much different. Getting there is much different. So again, Mormonism is not the same thing. It's not just a pure form of Christianity. It's a completely different belief system using the same terms that you and I do. God, Jesus, salvation, heaven, but meaning very, very different things. Now friends, there's not only problems with what they believe, but there's also problems with their religious books. There's problems with the Book of Mormon. I want to point out just a few to you tonight. There's, a pro- there's problems. There's, number one, plagiarism, if you're taking notes. The Book of Mormon contains plagiarism. Nearly 27,000 words from the Book of Mormon were taken directly out of the King James Version of the Bible. Whole chapters right out of Genesis and Matthew. Now, the Mormon will say, oh, wait, 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 that's not what happened. 
God gave us the same revelation he gave the Jewish people. So of course there's going to be very much a similarity between the the two books. Again, it's just another testament of Jesus Christ. But when you confront him and you say, okay, I understand it would be similar, but did Joseph Smith copy right out of the King James Bible? No, he did not, is what you'll be told. Well, here's a problem. Here's a problem. And I've actually used this to lead someone I already established a relationship with. That's the first part. We'll get to that in a minute. Away from Mormonism. Here's the problem. The Book of Mormon contains even the italicized words from the King James Bible, from the passages it didn't take from, so to speak. Now, those of you that have been around the church for a while, you understand what the italicized words are in the Bible. They weren't actually there in the Greek or in the Hebrew. They're there by the translators from 1611 to help you understand what was being said in Greek and Hebrew. So think that through with me. What are the chances that the same exact words that the translators of the 1611 Bible picked to help you understand English were the exact same words that Joseph Smith decided to be used? I don't know. And friends, it's not just the italicized words. It's mistakes, mistakes in translation that the King James Bible had in 1611. I didn't think there were any mistakes in the Bible. No, no, just better ways to translate certain words, not changes in doctrine, not going a different direction. But for example, Isaiah 4, 5 in the King James version of the Bible says, for upon all the glory, there shall be a defense. Isaiah 4, 5 in the original King James Version Bible says, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. Now in 2 Nephi 14, 5, the exact phrase appears, for upon all glory shall be a defense. The problem is, modern scholars say the word translated defense should be really translated canopy, and so they've changed it in all modern translations. But again, it appears in the Book of Mormon. So you're following me. Without copying, he used the same exact words that the the original translators used to help you understand the English, and whenever they messed up, so did he. I find that a little hard to believe. In fact, you high school and junior high students, if you did something like that, there would be a phone call coming home. It's plagiarism. It's taking directly, and it's all through the Book of Mormon. Secondly, there's false prophecies. False prophecies, 2 Nephi 10, 7, speaking of the Jews, says, But behold, thus says the Lord God, when the day cometh that they shall believe in me and that I am the Christ, then, as I have covenanted with their fathers, they shall be restored in the flesh upon the earth under the lands of their inheritance. You see, I know you've heard Pastor Rob say before and other teachers that this is the only book that dares to tell you the future in advance. The only book where God says, I'm going to show you that I'm outside of time as I tell you what happens before it ever does. The Mormon would say, au contraire. No, we have prophecy right there. In fact, what that says in 2 Nephi 10.7 is the Jews would someday be back in the land. Oh, isn't that a favorite prophecy of ours? Don't we, don't we talk about all the time that the fact that the Jewish homeland is, is now in existence in Israel is one of the key signs that the Lord is on the way we do. So there is prophecy in the Book of Mormon. There is, but hold on, hold on. If you're reading that passage carefully, it says that they will be back in the land after they have realized that Christ was the Messiah. Now, I've been over to Israel a bunch. My in-laws minister there at Calvary Chapel, Tel Aviv. And I can tell you without a doubt, the entire nation of Israel has not turned to Christ. 
In fact, opposite than that, the most people living in Israel today are atheists. They don't even believe in God, let alone the Son of God. So no one would dare to say that they're back in the land because of their belief in Jesus. It's a false prophecy. And according to Deuteronomy 18.22, God's prophets have to be correct 100% of the time. The Book of Mormon has failed the test. Whether it's plagiarism or false prophecies or translation issues... Remember, we were discussing the history of the Mormon church. Joseph Smith said he translated reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics into the Book of Mormon. Now we have to stop right there. Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, friends, is a non-existent language according to every Egyptologist that has ever been consulted on the subject, even by the Mormon church. There is not a person on the face of the the world that studies Egyptian history that has ever heard of reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics and translated them with the Urim and the Thunim. Oh, friends, you're better Bible students than that. The Urim and the Thunim are not magic glasses. They're from the Bible. They were part of the high priest's garment. In fact, Exodus 28 says, and you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thunim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. They're not magic glasses. They're stones on the high priest's garment of Israel. And moreover, this is my favorite part. After Joseph Smith was done, quote unquote, translating, God took the plates back to heaven so no one could ever examine them. How convenient. How convenient. Think about how that compares to the Bible. We have got manuscript after manuscript after manuscript. You've got Dead Sea Scrolls and ancient, ancient documents and newer documents and you can go back and see that the book that you have sitting in your lap today is so very close to when it was written and then copied in the first place. There is so much evidence. Uh, We'll get to that some other night. Then you've got this Pearl of Great Price, this other religious book. The Pearl of Great Price was translated from papyri fragments, which Joseph Smith bought along with an Egyptian mummy, because everybody needs an Egyptian mummy, from a traveling lecturer in, in 1835. According to Smith, the Egyptian hieroglyphics on the parchment were a record of writings by Abraham while he was in Egypt. Now, these papyri fragments were assumed lost or destroyed for many years, but guess what? Oh, joy. They showed up in 1967. They were returned to the Mormon church. And for some reason, I can't understand, they let scholars look at them, non-Mormon scholars look at these fragments, and guess what they discovered? That these fragments contain nothing more than an Egyptian funeral text with instruction to embalmers. It contained nothing close to what is quote-unquote translated in the Pearl of Great Price. Joseph Smith had taken Egyptian characters that actually were translated into one or two words like water and created long passages teaching Mormon doctrine such as pre-existence, the priesthood, and the nature of God. Yet undismayed by scientific evidence, the Encyclopedia of Mormonism unblushingly states that when Smith looked at the Egyptian hieroglyphics on the piece of papyrus, he sought revelation from the Lord and received the book of Abraham. Hmm... Again, the Bible. So I, when I share that with a Mormon one time, he goes, well, that's what happened to the Bible, right? I mean, those Greek words don't actually say what it says in English, but people looked at them and they got, they got what God really meant. 
No, that, no, no, that's not how we got our Bibles. They say exactly what they say in the English. It's a direct translation. You see, it's so different. There are problems with the Book of Mormon, whether it's plagiarism or false prophecies or translation issues or whether there's been lots of change. Joseph Smith said the Book of Mormon was the most correct book on earth. He said that in the history of the church in uh, 461, that's the reference to that. And it's also stated in the introduction of the Book of Mormon. This is the most correct book on earth. If that was true, there shouldn't be any need for any corrections. But there have been changes, lots of changes. In fact, 4,000 changes made to the Book of Mormon between the time it was published in 1830 to the current edition, which was published in 1981. Now, in their defense, most are spelling and grammatical errors. And listen, I feel bad for Joseph Smith. You know, I is a horrible speller. And, 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 and I do butcher that their English language all the time. I feel bad for those guys that, that, you know, had to edit my book. It took three people lots of time to get that done. But here's the deal. Even though I feel bad for Joe Smith, I never claimed that the fundamentals of walking, God, walking with God was the most perfect book that has ever been written, free of air. There's probably all kinds of weird stuff in there. You can read it and find out for yourself. You can buy it on Sunday. Anyways, that aside, listen, he's claiming it's the most perfect book that's ever been. But it's not just spelling errors and grammatical errors. Consider the changes in doctrine. The original version, the original 1830 version, 1 Nephi 1121, says that Jesus is the eternal father. Now, you and I would agree with that, that he's, he's one and the same as the eternal father. That, that contradicts Mormon teaching. So the new version says he's the son of the eternal father. Friends, that's not changing a word from defense to canopy. That's changing doctrine completely. Same verse, huge difference. It's hard to see how it's the most perfect book ever written. Plagiarism, false prophecies, translation issues, enormous change, no archaeological backup. The Book of Mormon tells us of two different nations that supposedly once existed in North America, the Nephi and Lamanite nations. We're told in the Book of Mormon that these nations had huge populations, lived in fortified cities. They they allegedly waged huge-scale wars with each other for hundreds of years, killing hundreds of thousands of people. The final battle in AD 385 near the heel of Qumran, which is in present-day New York State. Yet despite huge populations and cities and wars and archaeologists, because of that, archaeologists have not been able to discover one single shred of evidence to show that these groups ever existed, that these battles ever took place, that anything they said ever occurred. Listen to this. No one piece of evidence has ever been found to support the Book of Mormon. Not a trace of large city it names, no ruins, no coins, no letters, no documents or monuments, nothing in writing. Not even one of the rivers or the mountains or any of the topography it mentions has ever been identified. Oh, that's a, that's a Christian saying those things. Of course he's going to say that. Okay, consider the Smithsonian Institute, which, by the way, is not a Christian organization. It said the Smithsonian Institute has never used the Book of Mormon in any way as a scientific guide. Smithsonian archaeologists see no direct connection between the archaeology of the New World and the subject matter of the book. National Geographic magazine stated in 1990, there is no archaeological evidence to verify the history of the early peoples of the Western Hemisphere as presented in the Book of Mormon. 
Huge population, huge wars, yet not a shred of archaeology evidence to back it up. And again, and again, compare that to the Bible. Every time an archaeologist goes out somewhere in the Middle East, another passage of the Bible is confirmed, friends. I mean, there were days when they didn't believe that King David existed. There were days that they thought Pontius Pilate was just someone who was made up. There were days they thought the city of Nineveh never existed. But those things had been found. Stone documents with David's name on it, Pilate's name on it. The city of Nineveh found. You see, every time we see over and over again, this book we have is like no other book. The Book of Mormon doesn't come close. Whether it's plagiarism or false prophecies or translation issues or enormous change or no archaeological backup or whether it's DNA evidence, DNA evidence. The Book of Mormon claims that 2,600 years ago, Hebrews, follow me on this, 2,600 years ago, Jews came to the New World and populated this place and that's where you get all of the South American, you know, people groups and all the Central American people groups and all the Native Americans in North America. They're all Jews is what the Book of of Mormon basically states. In its introduction, it says, the Lamanites are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. You know, I mean, that's a claim. But we got this little bugaboo now called DNA where we can test people and see what their lineage was from. Who are your ancestors? You know, you could just look at me and say, you're a whitey, probably Scottish or Irish, and you would be right. I go out in the sun, I get red. I get beet red, and then I turn back to pale white. That's all I got. I don't got olive skin like... Other people around here. I, do, I don't have those kind. I just, I'm a whitey. And you can see that. And you know, if you tested my DNA, that's what you'd find. Sorry. You'd find that out. So guess what? They've done tests from Alaska down to the tip of South America. DNA experiments with people that lived in this part of the world for generations. And guess what? There is not one shred of of evidence that they are in any way related to the Jewish people like the Book of Mormon says that they are. In fact, if you want more on that, just, you know, there's a great, if you go into Google and and Google DNA versus the Book of Mormon or go to mormonchallenge.com, you can watch a free video. It lasts about 45 minutes. It's amazing and it causes a huge problem for the Mormon church. You see, whether it's plagiarism or false prophecies or translation issues or enormous change or no archaeological backup or DNA evidence or finally tonight, contradictions with the Bible, there's some problems with the Book of Mormon. Contradictions with the Bible. That's a problem if you believe both are true, which they do. What kind of problems? Well, according to Alma, that's from the Book of Mormon. That's, don't look for that in your Bible. Alma 7.10 in the Book of Mormon says this, Jesus was born in the city of Jerusalem, and behold, he shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem, which is the land of our fathers. Alma 7.10. What's wrong with that? Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem. That's what's wrong with that. In fact, the Bible tells us he was born at a time, Bible and history tells us that he was born in a city outside of Jerusalem, the city of Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 again, but you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one that will be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old and from everlasting. Serious, serious problems. You can find more of these if you want to write write down this website, utlm, utlm utlm.org. UTLM has tons of contradictions, all other stuff you you can study on the Book of Mormon if you want to go in depth. Now listen, listen, we're almost done. 
I gave all of that tonight for your benefit, for you. Because part of my heart and part of Pastor Rob's heart is that this church would be protected from false teaching and false doctrine. I want you to know that when they come to your door and they start to say things, you go, ah, I listened to this study from the short little guy and he, he was sweating and it was kind of weird, but, but oh, you know, it was... But I remember that, and you can go online, you can realize, oh, 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 there's some serious problems. It's for you. This study is for you. What I don't recommend is the next time you see a Mormon, you just blast all of this on them. That's what I used to do. You know, the doorbell rings, ding dong. You open it up, and it's Elder Jim, who's like 18. I'm an elder. All right. And I would be like, oh, yes. You picked the wrong house, baby. Woo! Here we go. All right. And they're like, we're from, I know where you're from. And you know what? You got problems with God, problems with Jesus, problems with salvation, problems with heaven. What about that DNA stuff? You're not Jews. That doesn't make any sense. And just over and over again. And it's kind of like, okay, never come back to this place ever again, you know? But never, never, never did I, did I get them like, really? I didn't know about DNA. What must I do to be saved? No, 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 no. So, so listen, that's probably not the best way to interact with people from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I think if you really want to reach them, number one, you have to invite them in. Now pray that through because there certainly could be, if you're, if you're weak in your walk with the Lord, you're not founded or grounded yet, hey, I don't know what founded is, but grounded in your faith, please, you want to pray about that. If you're a single lady, it may not be a good idea. If you don't have two hours, because it will take two hours, probably also not a good idea. But invite them in. Be kind to them. Ask them how the mission is going. Compliment them on the fact that they're out there serving you know, what, what they believe to be right, even when it's hot, even when it's cold. To offer them a drink. Now, you know, milk or water, not your Diet Coke or Rob's iced tea because they don't, they, don't, they don't drink caffeine. So be sensitive to that. And then listen. Listen to their presentation. Listen to what they have to say. You see, they're not used to being treated like that. They're used to that first approach. Ooh, here it goes. They're used to having people yell things at them and call them names. And the fact that you're, you're listening to them and interested at them, it will, it will change them. Then they'll do this. They'll testify to you. Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. The Mormon church is true. Jesus is the Christ. The president of the Mormon church is a prophet of, on earth today. And I say this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Then they'll challenge you. We invite all men everywhere to read the Book of Mormon, to ponder in their hearts the message it contains. Then ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if the book is true. Those who pursue this course and ask in faith will gain testimony of its truth and divinity by the power of the Holy Ghost. That's how they will typically go, typically go in their presentation. Then you tell them you have read the Book of Mormon. Now, if that's a false statement, get a Book of Mormon and read, read a little bit out of it. I, I, I'm not scared by telling you to do that. I, I don't fear the Book of Mormon. You go ahead and read it. Pray, ask, pray that prayer. They say, you know, is this Lord? Is this true? If you start to think it is, you need to listen to the study again tonight. <laughs> it's not true. But tell, be honest. I, I've, read, I've read the Book of Mormon, and I'll t- I, I've read it, and guess what? When I prayed, I didn't get that confirmation that you had. You're going to have two confused missionaries on your door all of a sudden, or hopefully by this time in your living room. Two, because listen, they're not used to be treated nice. 
They've never met someone outside of the church that's actually decided to take a few minutes and read the Book of Mormon. And the fact that you didn't get a burning in your bosom, they don't know where to go from there. So then you ask them, hey, I've got a few questions. Would you help me with that? Excuse yourself. Go go get a copy of the King James Version of the Bible, the only one they'll accept. Your Book of Mormon with verses like Alma 710, underlined there where it says, Jesus is born in Jerusalem. And then just say, hey, can you help me with a few questions? They're going to go, awesome. I'm trained to answer your questions. Excellent. Excellent. And what you're trying to do is ask them in love a few things that will get them to really search out the foundations of what they have what they've given their whole lives to. Maybe questions like, can you find me one piece of archaeological or historical proof from non-Mormon sources that prove that the peoples and places named the Book of Mormon are true? I've got tons of them for the Bible. Can you give me one from a non-Mormon source that backs up that these stories actually happened? How about this question? Why does the Book of Mormon state that Jesus was born in Jerusalem, Alma 7.10, when history in the Bible state he was born outside of Jerusalem in the city of Bethlehem? Why is that there? Thirdly, I've read where Joseph Smith said that he translated the golden plates from which he got the Book of Mormon letter by letter by the power of God. It was the most correct book on earth. If that's true, why has the Book of Mormon had to make thousands of changes from its original version in 1830? And that website I gave you before, you can actually see photocopies you can print out of the 1830 version and what it said and what the 1981, I think it is, version says. And you can show them there have been serious changes that could be made. My heart is that God would equip us, number one, to be protected. For when a Mormon comes to your door, when you meet one at work or at school and they begin to share with you, but also that God would start to give you some tools that you would be effective to get them out of the bondage, these wonderful, amazing people that have nonetheless been duped in what they believe. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, for your truth, again, that does not change. Lord, I'm glad that there was no God before you, and after you, no God will be formed. Lord, we have no business running the universe because there is you, You who is full of justice and full of truth and full of mercy and we are so blessed just to be your kids. We're so blessed to be in your presence. We're so blessed to worship you. God, we pray tonight for those in bondage to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Lord, would you open up their eyes to see that they have been really fed something that is not accurate and not true And may you release them from just the legalism that that cult brings, just the bondage that it puts people in, and may you set them free to the truth of the only one and true gospel, the one that we read in your word. God, give us boldness and grace as we encounter these precious men and women, Lord, throughout our our lives to be able to share your love and your truth with them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.